He will provide a way of escape so that you might be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So we're weak. We're, we're, uh, we, we despair. We're, we are prone to sin. But God intervenes. <clears throat> then lastly, Acts 13.29, And when they were carried... Out all that was when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So even when man attempts to destroy the Messiah, God just uses that. He uses the sin of man. This is kind of key to the message. He uses the sin of man to uh, bring about his salvation. In fact, we're going to see here in, 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 at the end of my message that it is. The quintessential example of God using the sin of man is at the cross, where they evil men crucified Christ, but in so doing, the, uh, God uses that to save and to give us to forgive our sins. And so Joseph says to his brothers, "You meant evil. You you did this because you hated me unjustly, but God used that to save your souls. What a, what a merciful God we have." And so in each case, God overrules the sin and the hopeless state of man. Joseph suffered hatred from his brothers, cruelty from Potiphar's house, and he was left forgotten in jail. And it's miraculous, and literally I mean that, it was miraculous that he has this attitude in Genesis 50-20, because that's not the attitude that we are born with, the attitude that trusts God implicitly, that can be patient in suffering. But we know that God was working in him to do this. And it's because Joseph knew two things about God that allowed him to give this reply to his brothers. And these, these, what I, the rest of the message, I want to concentrate on these two things that Joseph understood that, he, that was revealed to us in this verse about God that, that allowed him to say this. He knew that God was sovereign, but he knew that God was good. These are two sides, two things we must keep before us regardless of what is going on around us. And if we can do that, I believe that we are going to be much stronger in the faith and uh, much more uh, able to deal with affliction and a greater testimony to the Lord. So while there are two forces at work around us, man's sin, our sin, and God, we need to be concerned about what God says about all this. And he tells us that there are two things about his work that, that will keep our hearts in anything. He is sovereign and he is good. The lost person will confirm one, but not both. And this is something we must be careful about in ourselves. Sometimes we are able to confirm one, but we'll question the other. We'll believe that we believe that God is sovereign, but can you really be good? Or that God is good, but then we... We, we say he must not be sovereign because we, we listen to the way this world thinks. The lost will say in calamity that a good God must not be sovereign because he didn't stop this or that. Or he must not be good because he could have stopped it, but he didn't. And, and they can't rectify the two. But yet the Bible says, no, both are true. The problem is you've got to let God be God. <clears throat> Who is man to judge? We can't see the overall picture. We can't see the beginning from the end. We don't know all that God is doing. And so for us to say, well, God, you, you, how could you have allowed that? And, and, and what, you, what you end up doing is you put, 
you make some sort of disparaging uh, remark about God. But the Bible is the only revelation that explains the answers to these questions. And so that's what we've got to keep before us. And just as Joseph uh, said, that now we see that you did this. I went through these things to keep many people alive. And so first of all, what does it mean for God to be sovereign in all things? And of course, this is, is an exhaustive subject that we can't begin to exhaust at this point. But let me just try to make a few remarks in our context In this fallen world, there are many evil people who will seek to harm you. Often, as with Joseph, these evil people could be very close family members. It could be a parent who abused you when you were young, emotionally, physically, sexually. Uh, There are things like sickness and other providential things that come directly from the Lord. So you've got people who will harm you, evil people, or even people who harm you in not meaning to, then you've got the, the effects of sin, the sickness, and other providential things that, we, that come directly from God. But the Bible is crystal clear that all things that are ordained from God and have a purpose, even evil things. Yet our text says it is not our own sinfulness that, 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 is, that we are still responsible for our own sinfulness. And this is difficult for even Christians sometimes to grasp. God, every, nothing happens apart from God's decreative will. He has an eternity decreed, the beginning from the end. And yet, in that decree, we are responsible for our sin. And I'm going to uh, show you some examples of that in, in a, just a moment. So you have to keep in mind, as you work through Joseph's story, that at the time he was suffering, Joseph didn't know how the story was going to turn out. He didn't know yet that if he just held on for a few years, God would raise him up to be second to Pharaoh. But it's clear that he knew one thing for certain, that is that God is sovereign even over the evil things people do. Now, he might not have understood all that immediately or during the the time of suffering, but clearly by the time of our text in uh, 5020, he understands it, right? Joseph, trust in a sovereign God, carried him through the many bleak days that he that he's uh, sat in the dungeon, for instance. This isn't to say that we have to always be passive uh, when we're in some kind of danger, that we've got to say, well, you know, God, this is God's will, so I've just got to sit back and take it. It doesn't mean that you can't call the police when someone's trying to do you harm. But what I'm saying is that there is great comfort for the believer in knowing that however difficult our situation is, the sovereign God is still in control. It's going to work out the way he wants it to work out. For our good, remember, those who love God. The devil is not in control. Evil people are not in control. God is in control. Even when the police don't get there in time to save you, God's in control. And you see, I remember the day, you know, I was raised in a Christian home, but I remember the day when I was about 20 when God finally made me realize what the Bible said about his sovereignty. And, And it's just like a, it's just like I remember walking down the sidewalk at school and thinking, you know, life, my life had changed. I could no longer live my life the same way because I knew that God was in control of everything. And, and it was just a burden that was kind of taken off of me. And, and just uh, my outlook on life completely changed. That God is in control even when bad things happen. It's ultimately for my good. And many scriptures teach us that God is sovereign even over evil men 
and yet he is completely unstained by their sin. In the story of Job, for instance, you remember the Chaldeans raided and stole Job's camels. They killed his servants. Uh, and, and these wicked men were not acting simply on their own accord, but they had been impelled by Satan. And Satan had been given permission by the, you know, to do so much but no more by God to do these things to Job. <clears throat> and they, he could not do anything that God did not will. But we notice that God didn't cause them to sin. He merely allowed them to exercise their sinful will to oppress Job. But it all came from, remember, the very first chapter of Job. In fact, I believe that's the whole reason Job, the, the whole purpose of the book of Job is what we read about in Genesis fifty twenty. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Satan decides to attack Job, and all these bad things happen to Job, but it ends up, Job becomes a great testimony of the grace of God. The, the whole book of Job, I think, is to teach us how to deal with evil and sin and pain and suffering. <clears throat> Take another story in the Bible where God willed that the wicked king Ahab be killed in battle. Well, how did God do it? Well, we, we learn behind the scenes that a demon presented himself before God one day, and, and he has a plan let me go and deceive Ahab. And God says, okay, go, go do that. And so the, he, uh, through false prophets, tell Ahab that you can go and you'll have success in battle. And, of course, Ahab doesn't have success in battle. He dies. And so God uses a, a, a demon of deception to do that. But it's Ahab's fault because Ahab knew who the true prophets were. But Ahab didn't like to hear the truth. He wanted to hear someone who could tell him what he wanted to hear. And so Ahab was responsible for his own death in that sense. He he did not obey God. But we see how God uses sin. And and one thing that kind of, as I was thinking about that story, is that it kind of teaches us how important it is for us to be close to the Word of God. If we do not understand what, what God has revealed to us, how can we understand life? And what to do in life. I don't, maybe some of you follow Babylon B, a, the kind of a Christian parody. And uh, recently they had, they had one, this is a great one, where they had, remember this young man sitting at a table with the Bible literally a few inches from him closed, praying that God would speak to him and while the Bible's sitting right there. And that's sometimes how we act. We, we want to judge life by uh, you know, what we, how we perceive but we will not listen to what God says. And God tells us, look, this is why evil's in the world. This is why you've been called to suffer. And this is what I'm doing. And this is your hope. But we've, we've, it's so easy to forget that. And I know. I do the same thing. Joseph not only knew that God was sovereign over the evil that his brothers had done, he realized that God is sovereign over even the insignificant things that we tend to put off as chance. And, that's just, to me, one of the worst sins we can do when we, when we contribute thing, or attribute things to luck or to chance. <clears throat> you recall the story of when his uh, father sent, and this is talking about Joseph, his father sent him to check on his brothers and he didn't find them at that place where they were supposed to be. He found a man and the man says, oh yeah, they're over here. So Joseph uh, finds them in the uh, fields of Dothan and uh, then they, you know, for his trouble, he gets thrown to a pit. Planning, they plan to kill him uh, after lunch. But it was a precise at that moment that the trading caravan happened by, and he gets sold into Egypt and all that. 
And as that caravan was making its way south, Joseph had plenty of time to think, like, like we often do, right? Boy, we're, what rotten luck. You know, I just happened to be at the, the field, meet this man who got me over there just in time for all this to happen to me. Why did I happen to run into him just then? And why did the caravan come, come, come along just at this time when, when Reuben was perhaps going to save my life and then they end up selling me as a slave? But see, the, Joseph didn't believe in luck and happenstance. He believed in a sovereign God who sent him down to Egypt for reasons that perhaps at the time he did not understand. But how many times have we done uh, the same thing? Instead of resting in God's providence, we've attributed it to dumb luck, to just happenstance. And we've failed to honor God in our heart by saying, Lord, I know this is from you. Help me to do what I need to do. We decry the mysterious forces of the universe as being unfair to us. In other words, the first thing we have to understand, God is sovereign. There is absolutely nothing outside of God's ordained will in your life. And when you can accept that and embrace that, you will become someone who can glorify God in everything. And isn't that what Paul tells us? Uh, and what's the, whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you believe that what happened to you is something that's, that God didn't want to happen to you, but Satan outwitted God and, 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 and it just happened, there's no way you can do that. You can't give God the glory if you believe that God didn't want it to happen to start with. But the second thing we need to understand is that God is good in everything that he does. It is equally important to realize That God is good and righteous in all that he decrees. There is a good reason. God is righteous. He does no wrong. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't do bad things. A great illustration of this is Elizabeth Elliot, who maybe many of you know. She lost a husband in the 50s. Uh, He went, he flew into uh, South America and the, 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 with four other guys and he was immediately killed for his efforts. And, of course, it's turned out to be just a great story. But she makes some interesting statements concerning the providence of God. <clears throat> she lost her one husband to the Inca Indians. She, her second husband, she watched slowly die from cancer. <clears throat> and she says that on the surface of things, from a human standpoint, the fact that God is love and that he much less loved her was not easy to discern by sight. <clears throat> In fact, it could almost be taken that he didn't love her at all, or at least he was angry with her. Because if she was going to live by sight and not by faith, her life wasn't doing too well in a lot of ways. So she said, if I didn't live by the word of God, I would have to assume something that was completely wrong. And, 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 she, and it would depress her. It would overcome her, right? And we've all done it. We've all been there. She says that her belief in the love of God and the sovereignty of God is not by inference or instinct. It is of faith, and it has to be. I have to believe what God says about his love for me in the solid rock of Christ Jesus because if I merely attribute to God's love for me by how I feel that day or, or, the, or what good has happened to me or what bad has happened to me, I will arrive at all sorts of false conclusions. The revelation comes through Scripture. 
And since we tend to forget that we don't deserve the good things we have, we are always tempted to think that God is doing something that he shouldn't because we can't possibly deserve what's happened to us. Or... Um, Or that nothing good could possibly happen from what just happened to me. We, 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 there's just no way that I deserve that. No way good. And I've had something happen to me uh, about two, three years ago that I still have no idea why God did it. I still have not seen any, at least what I can discern with my eyes, any goods come from it. It's been completely disruptive. And yet I believe what God says. I can't look at the backside of the bookmark and, and judge it. I've got to be patient because I know that God is not only sovereign, but good. <clears throat> and so we, this conjuring up of a God from our own feelings is what happens when we don't know the word of God well enough as we should. He is at the center of the universe, the Bible says. We are not and. The Word of God tells me that. And so our marriages, our children, our jobs, life in general might not turn out like we think they should. And we conveniently forget that God loves us in spite of our out, because of the outward appearance. But if, if all things of Romans 8 means all things and God is not a liar, then we know that there's no, absolutely nothing in our life that we can turn around and accuse God of not doing right by us. Because all things is all things. God does not make a mistake. Everything he sends is for our good, even the pain, even the unfair treatment by others. And so this includes all the childhood trauma that we like to conveniently use as an excuse for all sorts of ungodly behavior. It includes what our face looks like, or the rest of us, for that instance. We, we have all these excuses of why we can't be a good, faithful servant of God, why we can be depressed, why we can be mean and hateful and unloving. But what we're saying is, God, you made a mistake. That's what being, when we're not content, that's all we're saying. God, you have made a mistake. And so the reason we must trust God is that it may be years or perhaps only in eternity before we figure out specifically how God is using our trials. Uh, Romans, or Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And we all know that verse and we grab hold to it and it's a good verse if we understand its context, this was actually being said to those who were being carted off into captivity, whose world had been turned upside down. And it's at that point that God says, look, understand that I have a future and a hope. And by the way, it's not going to be in this life. Right? They're all getting carted off to captivity into Babylon. Uh, they had escaped the destruction of the others, perhaps. At least they were alive. But he's really speaking about Christ. That's the only real future hope that, that Israel had at that time. And that's the only hope we have. So when you read that, don't think that, well, things are necessarily going to get better tomorrow. I know that I, that I have a blessed hope in heaven someday, I have, that Christ is my hope. So let's follow Joseph's example in that he didn't wait until the end of his life to acknowledge this. 
It was his, this faith that got him through his life. In fact, the single worst thing that happened to him, he sees, is coming from God. And does he not point us at once again then to Christ? Uh, the single worst event in all of history, the single worst sin in all of history of crucifying Christ was actually one of God's but. God took man's sin and he did a wonderful thing. And this affirmation of God's goodness, even in our trials, has been the refrain of saints down through history. I was reading John Calvin, who cites many scriptures of how God tenderly cares for and protects his children. And when he got done quoting all those scriptures, he summed it up by saying this. Indeed, the principal purpose of biblical history, but all the things you read about like in the Old Testament, he says... The principal purpose of that is to teach that the Lord watches over the ways of saints with such great diligence that they cannot even stumble over a stone unless he decides it. Now, I, I, I guess it's arguable whether that's the principal purpose of biblical history, but it's certainly something that we can completely miss and, and often do miss. Nothing happens to us if God doesn't want it to. In 1895, uh, perhaps uh, you've heard of the preacher and writer Andrew Murray. He was in England suffering from a terrible, uh, painful back. The result of an injury he had incurred years before. And one morning while he was eating breakfast in his room, uh, the hostess came and said, Look, there's a woman downstairs who is in great trouble and wanted to know if he had any advice for her. So he handed her a piece of paper that he had been writing on and said, just give her this advice I'm writing down for myself. It may be that she might find it helpful. And this is what she had written, or what he had written. And this, again, he wrote it down for himself. In time of trouble, say, first, he brought me here. It is by his will that I am in this straight place. In, In him I will rest. Next, He will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then say, he will make this trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last say, in his good time, he will bring me out again. How and when he knows. Therefore, say, I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time, and for his purposes. And, he, and I will get out when he wants me to get out. And I thought that was, that's pretty good advice. It's advice that, that allowed him to live with pain. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's when it caused him to look to God and not to his circumstances. And so the reason we must trust God is that it may be years or perhaps even in eternity before we figure out specifically how God is using our trials for good. Joseph had to keep trusting for years as he sat in the Egyptian dungeon. Every morning when he woke up in that foul place, he had to direct his thoughts to God and say, Lord, I trust that you have some good and loving purpose in this situation. I submit to your sovereign purpose even though I don't understand. And and I'm not saying he was necessarily saying that every day, but at some point he had to come to that understanding or we would never have had uh, Genesis fifty twenty. Considering how things ended up, now think about it, considering where Joseph ended up, how silly, if not outright sinful, it would have been if he hadn't have prayed that. 
If he hadn't have said, Lord, I know you're doing something good. Help me to be patient. He may have had to do that a hundred times a day, but I contend at some point he did it. Or he would have never said, God sent me here and God allowed you to do that to me for our good. And how sad and ungodly to spend years being bitter at God when God is doing something wonderful through the events that we complain so bitterly about. How many times have we wasted opportunities to testify of the goodness and glory of God because we've been too busy complaining instead of serving? And I've noticed that, you know, in my years of ministry, that the ones who are usually fighting depression and paralyzing depression are completely self-absorbed and hardly ever look outward to see how they can help anybody else. They are completely self-absorbed. Lastly, here in verse 25, we didn't read that earlier, but let's just read that. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall surely carry up my bones from here. You might read that and think, well, you know, whatever. Why is that verse here? But just like we did read with, uh, jo- with Jacob when he died, they wanted, their, they wanted to be buried in Canaan because that represented their hope. They knew that somehow that was connected to Jesus, to their Messiah, you see. That, that's not in there inadvertently. Joseph had lived in Egypt for 93 years and had thus been around some of the worst paganistic religions imaginable. And many professing Christians would have long ago been engulfed by that society and long forgotten any claim of Christ on their lives, right? What we see in this verse is that Joseph's faith had continued to grow. In fact, saving faith continues to grow in adversity. That's why it comes. So he lived and was a useful part of society, but remained separate from it in his thinking and his purpose. See, we've, we've been called into the, to live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to think biblically, look at things from God's perspective. <clears throat> he could have had a magnificent tomb prepared for him, But his life and death were all about eternity, and he chooses to be buried in the land of promise. And so when it's all said and done, these men had a theology of hope. Even in the dim days, they knew that the God of their salvation and that uh, that would take care of them, that they had a hope, uh, they had something that they were headed for that was not of this world, that gave them strength even in death. And so perhaps there are some here today who have to confess that the truth of God's sovereignty and of his love and of his goodness are not the driving truths of your life. You don't live in that world. You live in a, in our, in a world in which, you know, God's trying to do the best he can. Satan's over there doing his thing. And I've got my will and, and you've got your will. And we're all fighting and we don't know where it's going to end up. <clears throat> in fact, you don't even think of biblical truth outside of this building, perhaps. Do you take the messages, do you, do you, uh, you know, I, I got farmers in my church, <clears throat> you ever watch a cow eating its cud, do you go take the messages and ruminate on them, regurgitate them, and get a little bit of extra stuff out of them at home, and, and live by the principles of God's word? <clears throat> it's time to put your faith in God. And this is the God of, of the Bible, the sovereign God, the good God. You know, if you can't trust his providence, do you really trust in his crosswork? Is, is it not a little uh, disingenuous to say, I believe that God saves me in Jesus Christ. He can save my soul, but I can't trust him 
when calamity comes. I can't trust him to take care of my life. Either he can take care, either he can save your soul and he can, he can take care of you, or he can't. You can't trust him here and not there. <clears throat> so as I close, I want to just mention two other scriptures. There's, there's three places when you, when, when you meet a skeptic or when you fight this in your own life, not understanding how God works with sin in this uh, world. There's three scriptures you could take people to to kind of show them uh, how this works. We, this is one, Genesis 20, 50. The other one is in Isaiah 10. And this is where the Assyrians were about to uh, destroy Israel for their sinfulness, and God was going to use them to, to judge Israel. And notice what he says here in Isaiah 10. Ah, Israel, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Ah, Assyria. Assyria is going to be the rod of chasing to Israel. Against a godless nation I send him. That the godless nation is Israel. And against the people of my wrath I command him. So I command the king of Assyria to go up against Israel and take spoil and seize plunder and tread them down like the mire of the streets. They have broken covenant and this is their punishment. But, he goes on to say, but he, the king of Assyria, does not intend. In his heart, he does not think. In other words, the king of Assyria doesn't say, oh, goody, I get to go be a servant of God and go do his work. No, in his mind, he's saying, I want to destroy, to cut off nations and not a few. See, he's sinning. He's doing things for his own sinful reason. But God is sinning. God is allowing him, instead of holding him back and protecting his people, he's going to let him do his own sinful will. And so he finishes up by saying this. When God has, the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, when he's allowed Assyrians to destroy them, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. He will punish the king of Assyria because he sinned in doing that. God allowed him to do it for his purposes, and then he's going to hold him responsible because he did it in sin. You might not say, boy, that's hard, to, that's hard to get your mind around. Well, that's all well and good, but it's the truth. It's how God works. It's the biblical perspective on everything. And then one more, and we're done. That's Acts and Acts 4, 26. You can turn there if you want to, but I want to read it to you. Because this, as I said before, is a quintessential example of how God allows sin, uses sin, has ordained that sin be in this world, yet be completely untainted by it to do his work. <clears throat> The kings of the earth, Acts 4.26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So man hated Christ. The Jews who principally were the ones who put Christ to death did so. They knew who he was. They did not want any part of that kingdom. They set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, now look, at they, they've gathered themselves together to kill the anointed. They hate him, but to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. So they're, they're doing things for their own sin, but they can only do what God has willed. <clears throat> Over in chapter 2 of Acts, we, we learned 
that they're deliberately sinning. It says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is how the world works. This is reality. This is how the, the universe works. We must submit to it, and if we do, we'll prosper as servants of God. Evil has a purpose. In case you haven't really, you, I haven't been clear enough. Evil has a purpose. That's the way God has ordained this to take place. Is why He allowed the fall. See, the only alternative is that it's just Satan doing it. God can't stop it. It's the evil in our hearts. And see, the problem with that is that that means evil has no purpose. And what's worse? To know that, well, it's, it's, it's here, but at least there's a glorious end in it. There's, God's doing something in it. Or, I'm going through this, and there's no purpose. It's just that God couldn't stop it. So there's no reason for it. It's just Satan being mean. Instead, the Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into various tribulations because a good God sovereignly decreed it for a glorious end. I'm glad that everything has meaning even calamity, and that we aren't controlled by impersonal forces, all random with no good outcome for me. That's, that's really what evolution is. See, it's just random forces coming together for no good purpose at all, for no purpose at all. This is a God that's worthy to be worshipped, you see. Not a God who's trying to do his best and we won't let him. The God who is a rock that I can stand upon for my salvation and for my life because I have a blessed hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Thank you very much. Let's uh, pray before our final hymn this morning. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are both sovereign and good. That even when things look desperate to us, we can cling to that hope of joy with you in eternity. Father, we thank you for your word that you've laid that out before us so that we can understand and see clearly what you want to communicate to us about your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the time we've had together this morning and for these things that we can take home and consider and find in your word as we go through this coming week. Thank you greatly in Christ's precious name. Amen.